Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with our app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always. We have Chef Ann Kim from Minneapolis. She is the chef owner of Young Joni, Hello Pizza, and Pizzeria Lola. James Beard, winning chef of the Midwest in 2019. Chris and I were trying to sneak out of the Beard Awards and get a glass of wine when... They announced the award, and we're literally at the very back. Um, <laughs> and we saw that it was Anne, and we've been following her career because you hear stories, or these people are like, "Hey, there's this Korean woman making pizza in in Minneapolis, and it's awesome." And she's also serving like whatever else she wants. And of course, she's been on the radar a long time, and that was like a big deal because she gave probably the best speech in James Beard Award history, or at least the ones that I've attended. And I think we're, we're going to try to get you the audio on that. But I remember talking to Chris being like, we got to do something with her in, in some capacity because she's really blossomed into one of the best chefs in America, not just in her hometown of Minneapolis, but her whole approach to cooking, her earnestness and integrity, I think, comes through in her food. And people love her restaurants. And she's just someone that I think needs to be out in the world a lot more in terms of how articulate she is and in, in voicing her opinions and ideas. And we recorded this podcast and I thought it was one of the best, best ones we've ever done. Yeah, most definitely. I think um, she's, she'll say a couple of times in this podcast, like, oh, I'm being so inarticulate. I'm so emotional. I'm ranting. And Dave and I are just like, what is she talking about? <laughs> it's just like listening to a, a yeah. perfect speech. Yeah, she's great, and I'm really proud of her and honored that she decided to come on this podcast and be as vulnerable and open. And she really summarizes the last sort of five or six podcasts, so it's been a real treat to have her. And here is Chef Ann Kim. I'm glad that you're on, and we totally understood needing time, not being able to explain how you're doing, especially in this industry, is, is uh, that's easy to hopefully understand for anyone else that's not in it. We wanted to speak to you just to get a sense of, you know, what's going on with you, your restaurants, and also the city of Minneapolis. Obviously, the whole world knows what happened. And um, simultaneously, trying to operate restaurants with COVID-19. So it was a, it was a double, double knockout punch. 
But, you know, let me ask again, like, how are you doing? You know, uh, it changes every day. Um, I know a lot of people have used this analogy of feeling like you're on a roller coaster, but it really does. It's, it's, it's moments where you feel like it's going to end and then all of a sudden it takes a sideways turn and your gut is rolling again and you don't know what to do and, and you're making things up um, as you go along because nobody really has answers for you. So everybody's looking to us. Um, the, the own, we're, you know, I'm an owner. I'm the chef. Um, they're not getting it from the government. Uh, it's very hard to get any sort of answers. So, uh, you know, the question of how are you doing? It's it's day to day, but I'm I'm better than I was three weeks ago. And um, yeah, I think three weeks ago it kind of felt like uh, it really hit rock bottom. And I thought COVID was, okay, this is it. If, if I can get through COVID, then I can get through anything. And then George Floyd happened. And um, that felt a thousand times harder in, in many respects. But um, things have calmed down here. Um, and, uh, you know, things have shifted from fear and anxiety to um, hope and some radical change that I, I hope um, is going to really, really happen this time. So, and when, when we first reached out to you, it was about three weeks ago, I think, you know, as, as Dave and I have been doing these too small to fail conversations and, and the sort of conversations around Black Lives Matter, we really wanted to hear from you. But I think when I first sent you an email, I caught you in the middle of just like an eye-watering series of calamities and events. And maybe could you just take us through those events a little bit of the last a couple of weeks and just how, how this has all unfolded for you as, as a chef and, and a citizen of Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, I think Minneapolis was sort of on the global stage when everybody witnessed uh, on May 25th, the brutal murder of George Floyd, right? Um, that shook everyone to the core and, you know, in the past, I think people would have seen something like that and thought, oh, you know, what a tragedy. Another murder of a, a Black individual by police, right? That's too bad. Oh, shame on them. And then life would go on. But I think in the midst of COVID, and now here in Minnesota, we've been dealing with it for about three months now. I can't even believe I'm saying that. Um, there's this sort of collective sense of overwhelm and frustration and fatigue. There's been this overwhelming um, sense of uncertainty. People have lost their jobs. They've lost hope. They have financial insecurity. They have emotional, mental, physical insecurity. And everybody's isolated. And um, everybody's at home and they're staring at their phones. And then you witness this murder. And I think what that, I mean, I don't even want to compare this to silver linings, but I think the fact that we were experiencing this moment where everyone felt this overwhelming sense of um, frustration and, and anger at that, that moment when people witnessed that it was the George Floyd moment was a catalyst that set off um, a movement um, uh, of movement that people just said enough is enough. 
And I don't think it was just Black America. I think it was America uh, just saying that, holy shit, you know, this has been going on. And it's been something that people have been either turning a blind eye to or um, people just feel like if I don't think about it, it doesn't affect me. It's more comfortable to not um, have to deal with it. It doesn't affect me. I'm not a racist. Um, I've never thought of myself a racist. But all of a sudden, when you're sitting here and everyone is all sort of in the same place, um, people really began to realize that... Um, things have to change. Uh, so from that moment um, in Minneapolis, um, I saw that and I felt differently. And uh, people just took to the streets. There was anger. Um, protests broke out immediately. Uh, I believe it was the very next day. They started breaking out in and around um, different communities. Uh, peaceful protests happened as well. And uh, it wasn't until um, that Friday night and through the weekend, um, the city was on fire, basically. Um, there were many peaceful protests um, and there were, you know, it's when there's protests, it's, it's mobs and uh, mobs aren't uh, mobs aren't rational and people are angry. And we're not just talking about angry about one incident. We're talking about 450 years of systemic racism and inequality and injustice that's been going on and we've let go on. And in that moment, uh, people wanted things to change. And so there was peaceful uh, protests, but there were also um, angry protests. And uh, people were just, I think they were just trying to figure out how can I let the world know that this needs to end? I mean, when you hit rock bottom, what do you do? I mean, you don't give a fuck, right? It's like you've lost your job, you have no money, you have no security. So you just say, I don't care anymore. And so... I, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to show my frustration and scream on the top of my lungs and say, this is it, you know, arrest me, throw, you know, shoot rubber bullets at me. Uh, but we need things to change. And, and, and this is and, and this is what happened. And um, over the weekend, the National Guard was called in. Um, our restaurants uh, closed um, due to the safety of our staff and our guests. Um, there were um, reports that there were outside organizations coming in uh, that were being very um, targeted in, in, and um, in causing a lot of violent, um, uh, a, a lot of um, violent action um, targeting small businesses, many of which are immigrant owned. Um, uh, owned by people of color in some of the poorest neighborhoods here in Minneapolis. And that was really devastating to see and witness. Um, and um, it was hard because you didn't know. Um, people were angry, people were frustrated, and people were scared. And there were people saying, you know, you can't loot and you can't um, break into my business. And other people were saying, you know, uh, what just happened, what just happened to George Floyd, you know, you can't say that your business being looted or burned down is, is in any way more devastating than human life being taken away. 
And uh, I own three restaurants. Uh, believe it or not, for better or for worse, I'm actually working on opening a fourth restaurant in this environment. Um, and uh, <laughs> we didn't board up. Um, to a certain extent, if if our windows got broken, if we got looted, if things got destroyed, uh, those things can be replaced. Um, but for me, as a sense of solidarity to say, you know, I'm not going to board up. I'm not going to be afraid of that. I'm going to show my solidarity. And instead, uh, we plastered our windows with um, words of solidarity and justice for George Floyd. And luckily, uh, you know, our businesses uh, were, um, they didn't come to our businesses and, and, and um, we were, we were protected, but this is, you know, this is really hard for me because, you know, honestly, like when you guys contacted me, I think it was Monday, it was after that weekend when, when all of this went down, I honestly didn't know how I f felt. Um, I was nervous. I was on edge. Um, to be honest, I was scared of saying the wrong thing. Um, there was so much noise um, and it was so loud on social media and every paper that I picked up and, and every sound bite that I heard and people were uh, screaming at the top of their lungs and, and, and telling me how to think and how I should feel. And if you felt one way that was wrong, if you said one thing, it was wrong. And I honestly was trying to protect myself. And I thought, I've got three businesses going on Four. what if I say something that uh, offends somebody? Or what if I say something that someone takes out of context? And um, I felt really emotional and, and, and felt like, you know, I didn't want to come off as selfish, because at that moment, I was scared. I was scared already for COVID. I didn't know if my restaurants were going to survive. Um, I didn't know when there was going to be an end to this. And then here I am thinking, oh my God, now I don't know if the, the physical building is going to be here in, in the morning. Um, uh, I don't know if we can return to business as usual anymore. Um, and I guess as, as, a, as a Korean immigrant, um, that has also gone through discrimination. Definitely not, you know, um, the way Black America has gone through discrimination. Um, it was hard for me to really process. I was really conflicted in how I felt and how I was raised here in, in, in Minnesota, in, in uh, a very, very white, homogeneous state, um, and trying to really try and identify where some of this fear was coming from myself. And uh, I realized that some of these fears came from, holy shit, myself as an immigrant actually benefited from some of the this white privilege. Because when we immigrated to this country in 1977, <laughs> my parents, you know, they did, they, unlike a lot of black Americans and their ancestors, you know, we chose to come here, right? We had a choice. And 
you know, when we came here, um, my parents knew um, that in order to be successful or in order to to survive, that we had to assimilate, uh, we had to blend in. And that meant for them is to take on basically becoming white. Um, we came here, I immigrated with my parents and my younger sister and my maternal grandmother. Um, she left when I was 10 years old. Uh, she came primarily to, to uh, take care of my sister and I because they both took on multiple jobs. They worked graveyard shifts. And how we got to this country was we were sponsored. Our visas were sponsored by my white uncle, um, who was married to my mother's youngest sister at the time. And he lived here and um, he sponsored us and helped us get here. But we were, you know, I was raised on government cheese and food stamps. And, you know, till this day, I have a, an affinity to um, process cheese. I mean, we got those blocks of cheese and, you know, my parents worked hard and, and, and they, they hustled um, uh, to get us to where we were. And my uncle's parents, uh, who sort of was our adopted American grandparents, uh, basically, for, you know, lack of a better word, cultured us and helped us um, assimilate and become white. So, you know, God bless them. They were there, you know, they were amazing people. But, you know, what I realize now looking back is, you know, they, they made sure that we read the right books, that they took us to the theater, they took us to the orchestra, um, they, in, you know, they hosted the holidays. And so we had American traditions and we ate, you know, turkey on Thanksgiving and um, uh, that they, we even changed our names. I remember till this day that my uncle and his father had a big fight and my parents just stayed out of it. You know, they said, whatever you think is best, but they fought about whether or not when my sister and I started school, whether we should keep our Korean names. My Korean name is Kim Ung Young. And, um, my, uh, grandfather Fred, my uncle's father said, you know, she's going to get chastised. She's going to be teased. Nobody's going to know how to pronounce it. So we need to change your name. So they took off the un and gave me Anne. And my sister's name is Kim Sung Young and took the son and gave her Susie. And so from a very young age, I identified very much as white. And I realized that, you know, when all of this was happening, I was trying to process my feelings like, you know, well, Every, it's, the internet is so loud and, and people are talking about how you need to act and feel. And, 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 and I was very conflicted and torn because part of me was thinking, you know, well, I'm an immigrant too. And, and, and I struggled too. And, and, and my perspective and how I feel about what's going on is very different from what I was being told from uh, my white colleagues or or white friends or people out there on social media and I was trying to really identify um, my responsibility in this as well and where these conflicted feelings were coming from um, my history uh, my parents history their shame which eventually became my shame you know because they came to this country and uh, my mother is actually North Korean um, she grew up in Wonsan and she was 13 during the war. And um, 
you know, she, she experienced a lot of things. And I don't know if this is the same with you, Dave, but, you know, my parents told me very little about our history. Very little. And I'm 47 years old. And up until recently, you know, I didn't really know about their past. You know, I didn't. And partly, you know, I don't think it was a lack of interest, but growing up, they didn't want us to know. And I think part of it came from they felt like they were so ashamed of their past that they didn't, neither of them had a high school education, that they struggled, that, you know, my mother, you know, she didn't know when her next meal was going to come from. So she kind of wanted to erase that part of her history. It was almost as if like, if she told us her history, that her children would repeat it in some way. And so for the longest time, I didn't even know who they were. So I always felt like they had a shame that they carried with them and they wanted to just it to disappear. So we took on this whiteness. And so therefore then I became ashamed of my Koreanness. I became ashamed of my parents. I became ashamed that they didn't speak English. I was ashamed of my grandmother. I was ashamed of the food we ate. I was ashamed of the way our house smelled. I was ashamed of everything. And it wasn't until recently, you know, that I asked my mom, like, mom, and she's 85 years old. Like, I don't even know the hometown that you're from. And I know bits and pieces about what you tell me about your siblings or why um, I know very little about, you know, your father. And I do think it comes from a place where they, they struggled. And for them, I think it was partly, you know, you don't need to struggle. Uh, you don't need to know what happened in the past. And instead, do this, be this choose this. Um, and it, it is very much this, this idea of being a model minority and, you know, this, this um, constant um, struggle for perfection and achievement, you know, put your head down, do as we say, be submissive, be quiet, don't rock the boat, um, you know, get a good job, be educated, um, don't speak your mind, your voice. And that's, you know, it's ironic because the very reason why my parents immigrated to this country was because, you know, they knew that the choices that their two daughters would have growing up and, and um, the opportunities that we would have in Korea back in the late 70s, early 80s were limited basically to get married and to have children. And uh, we came here and they wanted more for us. But then at the same time, they didn't want us to struggle. And here I am choosing professions where it's all about struggle, right? I was a professional actor for eight years and you know they disowned me for a while for choosing that profession. And then once they really started getting used to that and, and realizing that I was actually um, making a living and, and, and um, actually pulling it off, I decided I'm gonna become a cook. And so for them, I think it was really hard for them to deal with someone like me. And so I've always kind of grown up with this identity crisis because as a small kid, it was like, I wasn't that that girl, um, whatever that, uh, that model minority, Asian, Korean girl, woman is supposed to be, right? I mean, I was outgoing and outspoken and 
I always felt that I needed to do something that was tactile and my heart was always attracted to things that were creative. And, and so as a small kid, I was a class clown and then I always wanted to do theater, but then I was, there was this tug and pull, but you know, you have to get good grades and you have to do this and you have to apply to Ivy league schools. And, and it was kind of to, you know, overcome the things that they didn't have or their shame so that I could make up for that in some way. And, um, it was by doing that, I, I, I erased that part of me, which was being a Korean, being an immigrant, the history that, that I have that ultimately my parents were ashamed to share. And, um, you know, I'm still trying to come to terms with that right now. I mean, I, I'm still struggling with an identity crisis to tell you the truth. Um, you know, I'm rambling here. I don't, you know. Hey, Anne, you're not rambling. And I just want to tell you this is I see you. I see you, and, you know, it takes a lot of courage to articulate everything you just said, and I don't think I've ever remained that silent on this podcast ever because it was uh, incredibly moving to hear. Um, and while I didn't live that story, my parents didn't live that exact story. It's eerily similar, and I just wanted to tell you that I see you, and I feel you, and if I could give you a giant hug, I would. <laughs> Because you're 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 not going through identity crisis. You're just you're being you, and that's what the parent your parents moved here for is to give you these opportunities. And um, I think this reckoning has been, you know, a, yeah, a silver lining for us to to come to terms with a lot of these things. And when Chris and I were in the back of the Lyric Theater in Chicago when we saw your acceptance speech. We were just beginning to do this whole TV thing with Hulu and everything. I was like, we got to find the right medium for her because she is special. And it's not even about making great food and the restaurants that you make. I think you can be proud that you've you made your parents proud and you did it your way simultaneously. And I just wanted you to know that is, you know, while you've been watching whatever I've been doing, trust me, Chris and I have been keeping tabs of everything you've been doing <laughs> because we've been incredibly proud of everything you've done. And uh, it's an honor to be able to have you speak so openly and emotionally because I think whatever you just said encapsulates the immigrant experience for so many people. And it was beautiful. And I just want to tell you, I see you. Well, thank you, David. I mean, I think usually I'm a little bit more articulate and I don't know. I mean, partly I think I was sort of afraid that this is where I was going to go when you guys asked me to do this um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, usually when I'm really emotional, I just, I ramble on, you know, and it's almost like, no, and trust unconscious. me, it's just like <laughs> we, we spent a lot of time trying to articulate what you just articulated. <laughs> if this is you as inarticulate, I don't even know what articulate Anne looks like because that, that was, I, you know, I, I second what Dave said. I, I absolutely empathize with with what you're talking about, and you know, our our stories are different. But you know, going back to what you were talking about, it, it, with, with social media so loud, I can fully understand how hard it is to find your footing, your personal footing in this movement and and reconcile it with 
you know, feelings that maybe you, or, or, or a process of understanding that people didn't want to acknowledge is, can be difficult to, I grew up in a very white world as well. And, you know, I, I think it's, it takes a huge act of bravery and to, to say when, when Dave and I reached out to you to frankly ask you for answers for you to say, I don't have them for you. And I need the time to figure them out. That that was I respected that so much. I think, and not putting the the size of Dave's platform ahead of you really processing this and coming to terms with with your own beliefs and and your own history. I think, you know, please don't think you're being inarticulate or rambling right now. I, I think, like Dave said, it's 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 incredibly meaningful to hear you talk. And know this, Anne. If, if just one person listens to this and they're able to see themselves. I, I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a lot more than one person that's going to be able to relate to this. And you just did so much good in the world. You really did. Well, I appreciate that. I hope so. And, you know, it's hard because when you grow up here in Minnesota, you do feel a sort of sense of isolation, especially as um, a Korean immigrant. I think it's different if you grew up um, in Chicago or New York or LA or New Jersey, because there is a sense of community there. And I don't want this to sound like I'm down on Minnesota. I'm not, I love Minnesota. I'm proud of uh, Minneapolis, but I'm just trying to share with you how I grew up and where I grew up. And I, I do think there's a reason why this happened here in Minneapolis too. You know, there is a sense of, repression, um, that everything is good, everything is nice. It's sort of that Lake Wobegon, Garrison Keillor, uh, right, that um, I don't exactly know what he said, but it's like all your kids are great and everybody's beautiful and everyone says the nice things and blah, blah, blah. And there was that element to it. And and so I did feel like an outcast when I went into a community where there were actual Koreans. And I felt almost discriminated against, right, within my own community because I didn't fit in as a Korean. And I didn't fit in growing up um, for, you know, from K through um, uh, uh, 12, I didn't have an identity here as a Korean. I was ashamed of it. So I became white. I took on their privilege because that was a way of surviving, right? That was the way you could get by. That was the only way you could get by without being teased or um, called a chink or told that everything we ate, you know, was um, disgusting. I used to never have my friends over come to my house, okay? Because, you know, thank God that my grandmother raised me because she is, because of her, um, I'm, I, I, I'm the cook that I am today. I mean, we made everything from scratch and mainly because we couldn't afford to grocery shop. So she made everything from tenjang to gochujang, everything from scratch. But my house smelled disgusting, right? I mean, everything was funky. So you go from that to New York City where everyone's confident and everyone's talking about how proud they are. And so there is that sort of total disconnect where it's like there is you don't feel like you belong anywhere. And so when George Floyd happened, it was like, yeah, you know, people are telling me you're a business owner and you need to stand up for this and you need to feel this way and you need to do more and you need to do that. And it's like, yes, yes, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And But then deep inside, I'm like, fuck, you know, I've been called a chink. I've been told to go back home to Japan. And I'm like, I'm not even from fucking Japan, you know? And it's like, like, where do I get to tell that story? You know, and this is not my, and this is not about, this is not about 
woe is me. And this is not about Anne Kim telling her story about being a Korean immigrant. This is about systemic racism and what that has led to in our country today, right? But just racism and what not only white privilege, but what how privilege adds to that. And that we all have to just kind of recognize that there's racism of all kinds. And when you think about what Black America has gone through over 450 years, it's, it's yes, I've been discriminated against. And yes, immigrants and other people of color have been discriminated against. However, Black Americans have had a disadvantage. They were locked up put into the bottom of a boat and enslaved. This country was built by them, right? And so that's where it's different. Where we, you know, me as an immigrant coming here, we had a choice, whether it's because you're escaping, you know, um, oppression or conflict or, you know, um, you're a refugee, but there is a, you're making that choice. And Uh, Black America did not have that choice. And over hundreds and hundreds of years, we've allowed that to continue on. So when we say come to America, land of the free, equal opportunity, okay, it's not equal for all. And Black America, it's like if you're running a marathon, it's like giving everyone else, or let's say white America, everyone else, you know, 13.1 mile advantage and saying Black America starts after. So no matter how hard you run or how good of an athlete you are, you will never win. You will never catch up. So it's never fair, right? And so for me, it's like, okay, well, I'm not that. But then when people are telling me I need to act in a certain way because they haven't even recognized that I am an immigrant. The point I'm just trying to make is that I just did not know how to respond truthfully and authentically to everything that was going on, whether it was COVID and how I should respond to that and the needs of, you know, I have over 180 um, employees now um, and to answer to their needs and the complications and their feelings and, and their needs and their wants and their fears and try and sustain three businesses and another one, which it's, we almost walked away from that. And, and we're still in that. And, but nobody wants to hear about, nobody cares and no one wants to hear how hard it is, you know, on the, on the other side. And it is, you know, when I chose to be in a leadership position, when I chose to become an entrepreneur, part of that is you accept that, right? You take that on. Um, but it exists. So where's your outlet? My husband, my poor husband, right? He gets it every single day and we're business partners too. So it's just like, holy shit, like where's our respite? You know, where, 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 where do we, where, who do we, who do we turn to? And, and because it can't be about, oh, me, you know, we have bigger responsibilities. When we chose to do this, when we took on this position that we also signed up for this. And it was just when it, when the shit hit the fan, it was just really hard. And it was doubly hard as trying to figure out as a woman, as an immigrant, and people not even recognizing that and saying, you need to do this and you need to feel this way. And this is how you become an ally, Anne. And I'm like, but I'm not you. And I'm not white. 
you know? Yeah. So please don't tell me what to do, think, or feel. Can I please take some time to process how I think or feel? And can I please try and come up with something that feels like the right thing for me to think and feel and say at this given moment in time? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Great Jones, a startup that makes the cookware that I use and love at home. Upgrading your kitchen tools is one of the best things you can do to improve your cooking. Yet many home cooks don't realize how important it is to replace their old pots and pans. If you're at home cooking more than usual right now, Great Jones will set you up for success. And they make the process of figuring out what you need and why in your kitchen easy and joyful. Great Jones products are affordable and high quality. Whether you are looking for select products or want to outfit your whole kitchen with their family style set, Great Jones is a one-stop shop. You want a mix of cast iron, stainless, and non-stick in your kitchen. Great Jones products also look as good as they work. I actually take my blue Great Jones Dutch oven, which at $155 costs a lot less than others of the same quality, right from my stovetop and put it on my table. Great Jones has figured out how to make products that both look and function extremely well. To shop, go to greatjones.com and use code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, at checkout for $25 off your order of $75 or more. That's a great, great deal for fantastic cookware. That's greatjones.com, code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, for $25 off of $75 or more. If you care about how your food tastes, you should care about your cookware. So invest in it. So don't forget, greatjones.com and use code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, for $25 off orders of $75 or more. Today's show is also brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to garden by Ron Friendly. You can learn physics from Neil deGrasse Tyson. You can learn Mexican food from Gabriel Camara. There's Gordon Ramsay. You can learn California cuisine by Alice Waters. There's Martin Scorsese. This unequivocally has been the content I've consumed the most in quarantine with over 75 different instructors across tons of categories that is literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, Apple TV, or Amazon Fire TV. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, all of which you can explore at your own pace. The Masterclass that I watched the most is Aaron Franklin because I love barbecuing. Aaron actually is one of the great chefs and he's not just the barbecue expert. He's a great chef and a great person. And I just love learning how to get all of his tips and masterclass is just worth that. You know, it's like, there's so many other things, but I know Aaron and he's literally giving you everything he knows. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, all of which you can explore at your own pace. Lessons are about 10 to 15 minutes in length, so you can fit into your busy schedule. Hundreds of video lessons from over 75 of today's most brilliant minds are available anytime, anywhere for just $180 a year with the All Access Pass. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a Dave Chang Show listener, you'll get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's masterclass.com slash Chang for 15% off masterclass. Great deal. I love it. Dave turned me on to a book recently by, by a, a professor named 
Jeffrey Ogbar, who we're going to have on the podcast, but Dave told me about this book about black power. And, and very, very early in the book, he writes that, and I'm, maybe I'll butcher this, but I, he, he says that people's reactions to racial oppression are often different because racism itself takes so many different forms. Yes. And I think that you and Dave and, and myself having experienced a different kind of racism than, than Black America, mm-hmm. it's natural for us to react to the, our experience of racism. You know, mm-hmm. And I think it takes a little time to step outside of our personal experience. And, and when we hear racism, it upsets us, it angers us, and it triggers our memories, our personal memories. But I think it yes. takes a minute. And, and what Dave, Dave and I have been talking about a lot and, and what he's been encouraging a lot is to, yes, those are valid, but to be able to step outside of that. And I think it, it does yes. take time. And I think, it, I, think, I think, you know, that's what you're talking about here too, is taking the time to step outside of yourself and see other people's struggles, yes. not as invalidating your own, but as, as similar. Yeah. And that's exactly why, you know, I decided that I wasn't ready to, you know, take on this platform and be on the podcast two weeks ago. Um, because in all honesty, that's kind of where I was living at that time. But I knew it was not pla- the place to be. And I have to be, you know, it's, it's where I was living at the moment. But I realized with some time to really process where that was coming from, that this movement, what happened, what is continuing to going on is bigger than me, you know? Um, it's, it's more complicated than me. Um, and I am, you know, I, 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 I want to be a part of that fight, right? Because Black Lives Matter, you know, it's... Yes, it's, you know, I I think I read somewhere someone said, yeah, all lives will matter when Black lives matter. And that is the truth, right? I mean, we, even as Korean immigrants, benefited from the progress that they made during the civil rights movement, right? And and I think there, um, you know, there are so many things that um, other minorities, you know, it's almost like they're pegged against each other in order to, to, to get by in this country, in white America. And this is a moment in which we do have to come together and unite and understand, even though I will never completely understand what it's like to be Black in America, um, and that I have a lot to learn and I have a lot to do, um, uh, work myself um, to see how I can best use my platform um, to help make some serious progress, um, um, uh, you know, not only socially, but also within my own industry, because we all know, I mean, we saw the vulnerability of the restaurant industry when COVID-19 hit, and we're still seeing that and witnessing that, and um, many restaurants won't come back. Um, You know, I'm hoping that we will come back, but we'll come back changed and very different from what it used to be. And a lot of that wasn't just, you know, financial. A lot of it was um, cultural, you know, mental, emotional, and that's got to change. Um, and so if, if I can't, if we can't do that from, you know, just the very basic level of, of, of the profession that I chose to be in, you know, uh, we can't 
do the greater work, right? I mean, you have to start. It, it, it's then that's the ultimate hypocrisy, right? That's self-righteousness. If you're saying like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go out there and fight the good fight and fight for social justice and equality and um, integrity of what you do. But then the industry that we're in is is broken, right? And damaged. And we can't even take care of our own. Um, so for me, it's it just kind of awakened my eyes to so many different things, not only about race and ethnicity and equality, and, and but also just about, you know, the profession that I chose to be in. And, and, and how can we continue to make it sustainable? And the one thing that I do pride myself in is when I got into it, I got into it not in the traditional route of culinary school or, um, you know, working, um, you know, with, for very little money for, you know, long hours under, you know, um, sort of command and control kitchens. I, you know, I came from a very different, um, uh, direction and never really worked in a restaurant. And so when I came into it, I recognized right away that there's some things that aren't working. And so I just kind of followed my gut and said, well, what is the kind of business I want to go to every day? You know, what would be the place that I want to wake up to and feel proud of going to? And that's just what we decided to create. But I realized that as I got into this over the years, that that isn't the system that is built. And then you're hiring people that work within that system, right? And you're like, where are all the leaders at, right? Well, they don't exist because, you know, these sous chefs or CDCs or even executive chefs are coming and it's, it's, they know how to um, chop a carrot but they don't know how to lead a team. And it's like, where are they all at? But how do you expect them to be there if they don't have an example of what it means to lead and to resolve conflict, right? Because they don't know how. And so we really had to say like, okay, we're going to invest in that ourselves. They don't exist. So when they come into our culture, we're going to build that and it's going to be slow and it's going to be steady, but it's the only way to get through this. And so I realized that work that we started 10 years ago, that it's so much more important now on so many different levels, right? Because if I can't do that and commit to changing, you know, I can't change the restaurant industry, um, but I can change the way that we want to operate. And I do think that the industry as a whole is looking at that holistically and, and, and I, I think for the better, um, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be messy. It's going to be a long road. Um, but I do hope we go that in that direction. Well, thank God you didn't work in a traditional brigade system because people forget that change happens because outsiders enter that we're not of that world and it always yeah. happens. And, uh, you know, it's refreshing to hear someone identify all the stupidity of our profession <laughs> from the get go, because, you know, you, you drink the Kool-Aid. I certainly did. Uh, because another thing is you, you sort of want to fit in as well, right? And at the end of the day, you know, we can look at our industry and you said it accurately. It's a broken system. And I think we need to really unpack what that means. There's very little that actually works well. The only thing yeah. that works well is that it perpetuates the same shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, just I, I always use as a measuring stick how hard it is to get cooks to adopt the metric system. <laughs> if they don't want to change to a metric system, why would they want to be a little bit more open to anything else? <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's easy, right? Yeah, that's the easiest fucking thing to do because it's, it's 
just a little bit out of their comfort zone. Well, I don't want to do it. And I just remember our industry is built on that kind of ignorant stupidity. It's like, I'm not going to use a scale because I'm a, I'm a fucking dude, man. I'm just going to throw that shit in there. Yeah, I think part of it too, um, I don't know if it's all completely 100% just ignorant stupidity, but I think it's just change. Nobody likes change, right? I mean, it's almost like you're willing to do the dumbest things because you're afraid of what will happen if you change that system, right? I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen to change to a metric system? I mean, absolutely nothing, right? You have to take some time to get used to it. But now we're talking about like, okay, how do we make the restaurant industry equitable when it comes to um, compensation, right? The whole financial model of a restaurant can't, there's a, it's like there's a certain point in which you can pay a line cook or a sous chef because if you pay them any more, that the whole, it'll break down your entire restaurant, the whole, the, the financial structure and you go under. And, you know, there's something archaic about what we're doing. And, and this is, has nothing to do with, you know, the value of a cook versus a server or the back of house or the front of house. In my mind, we're all one house, right? And so it's really about saying, what is the value of this position? Okay. And what is the value of this individual that this individual brings to this profession, their commitment, uh, the, uh, the time they've put in into the restaurant, um, their trajectory of leadership, um, um, and, 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 and being able to judge, you know, people in our industry as a profession, just like any other industry, right? Versus, um, we can only pay you this much because if we pay you 50 cents more, uh, the business is going to close, right? Or that a guest holds the power and can say, this is what I'm going to pay you today um, in order for you to make your salary, right? I mean, it's such an archaic system. The whole idea of tipping, why are we still doing these things? Like, why are we still practicing these things that would deep inside inherently we know are wrong? Because it's hard, because change is hard and it's going to take too much time and time is money. And let's just, it's, 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 it's running okay now. And so if we have to change it, that's too big. That's too much. But and, gonna, and, and that's the thing is, I want to be careful with my words here because I am disappointed. Listen, we, we, this whole industry's got, you know, just crushed. And I don't want to kick us when we're down. But because we've been allergic to change is why we're so unprepared for this too. Mm. Yeah. But think about how much change has happened just in the last three months. More than probably in the last 20 years, which yeah. just boggles my mind because it's like hu human beings are capable of change, right? I mean, if you just want to witness what has happened in terms of science, medicine, industry, uh, you know, uh, social, cultural, politically. I mean, oh my God. I mean, uh, whew. You, yeah. you could call it progress or taking steps back, but it is, you, it, we are capable of it. I mean, I hope to God that it doesn't take another pandemic or, you know, you know, another taking of a life, you know, of, of you know, police brutality um, and in racial injustice, injustice for this 
you know, for change to happen. That shouldn't happen because of that, right? But that just goes to show how allergic people are to change. I think, you know, the way I see it is, you know, I've, I've, I've been a cook in restaurants who doesn't want to change things. And, and I think the idea in the back of your head is like, yeah, this will probably be better if we do it a different way, but it's not going to kill us to keep doing it this way. Well, now it might. Yeah. Now not changing like, all the systems might end up killing the restaurants. So I think you're right. Like right now, hopefully it doesn't take another one of these traumatic events to force change, but it, it seems like it, it will. It seems like it takes people being backed up to a life and death scenario. The pessimist in me realizes that there's a good chance this change is actually temporary. Mm. And independent restaurants are going to get squeezed and we're going to see the the resurgence of chain restaurants and and big corporate behemoths because I just don't see moving forward unless we actually have solidarity in the business that we all systematically change how we all do business. It doesn't work with outliers anymore. This change needs to happen right in the fucking middle and everyone needs to agree, but we cannot get any concessions or solidarity because everyone is looking out for themselves. And it's a bunch of bullshit that everyone says, no, 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 I care about the business. I was like, no, you care about your business first. Yeah. And and I don't know exactly how this reckoning is going to play out because, um, you know, Corey Lee said it best. We need to save this business, not for us, but for the future generations. And I just don't know if we have enough selfless people in this industry to do that. And I question my own sort of, problems in this business yeah. too. So it, it's it's a bigger issue. I don't know if it's going to be fixed, but, you know, w- w- we just need to look at this is the big restaurant groups like Darden and, you know, the publicly listed companies. They're going to reap the w- rewards on this and they already have because they don't have to change anything and they're not going to charge more money for their food. And you're going to have restaurant owners like Chris was telling Chris. We had Chris Shepard on the podcast last week, t- saying that there are restaurants in Houston right now that don't give a fuck about social distancing. They're sitting people at the bar shoulder to shoulder. It doesn't work yeah. if one restaurant doesn't give a fuck about doing it better. It ruins it for everybody. Yeah, but you know what, Dave? I don't want to believe that. I mean, I know you know you said that's the pessimist in you. I think it's also your Han speaking. Yes, and, it is. You know, <laughs> I've got some major Han too. Like, uh, I know, I know where you're coming from. And for me, it's like, I can't live there because if I live there, then it's, um, it's all over for me. Then mm-hmm. I might as well just hang up my hat and call it quits and um, sell insurance or something. Because if, and and I did live there for a while, like when COVID hit, for about three weeks, I was like, you know, I felt sorry for myself. You know, I said, what is this all about? Nobody gives a shit. Like, why should I work so hard? You know, why? I mean, there's, I mean, it's broken. Uh, I'm going to walk away from this, uh, this restaurant that, you know, we're millions of dollars in debt. And I think one thing that people don't know is we don't have any investors. I built our four restaurants up from like 
bootstrapped, you know, my first restaurant being Pizzeria Lola almost 10 years ago, you know, maxing out credit cards, you know, being a good Korean, I was saving, saving, say, saving. So I had, you know, really great credit rating. And it was like, holy shit, what is she doing? She's maxing out her <laughs> credit cards and just busted our ass to do that. And I just, you know, I remember if I think back to what was, what, what made me do that? Because I really believed in something because I was doing a profession that I fell out of love with because I had zero agency, right? I didn't have choice over the decisions I made. The roles I got was based on whether a director thought I fit the part. Was I tall enough? Was I short enough? Skinny enough? Asian enough? Asian not enough? You know, and I was sick and tired of it. So I made a decision 10 years ago that, damn it, I'm going to have agency and control. And so I said, I'm going to, we're going to do this. My husband and I, you know, did this together. And from that success, we were able to build and grow our restaurants. But we did that and made a choice. We decided that we would take the risk of being able to continue to have agency and voice over our businesses and the choices we made um, rather than financial security. I mean, knock on wood, it's paid off so far. I don't know about the fourth restaurant, Dave. I mean, our luck might run out, but I can't believe that because if I do, I might as well quit now. And I have to take on more of a Pollyanna approach um, because I do believe that it can change. I do believe it's going to be fucking hard. I do believe it's going to take a long time. But what else am I going to do? You know, I don't have children of my own. Um, I consider my restaurants my family. And oftentimes it's like, you know, they're little assholes too, but I love them, you know. <laughs> you know? But, and, but they're the family that I chose to have, and I'm not going to give up on them. And, you know, I am working with... Um, some like-minded restaurateurs and colleagues and chefs and restaurateurs who also feel the same way because we don't want to see our community turn into the chains again, taking over because that's, that's sad. That's horrendous. You know, that's, that's everything. The reason I got into the business is to change that coming from New York where you could go on every corner and there was a small little neighborhood joint that, you know, everyone knew your name and, 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 and there was like only three dishes um, on the menu, but it was amazing. And I thought, why isn't there more of that here? So when I opened, it was like, that's what I wanted to do. That, that was like, that was going to be my life's work. And it, it didn't even seem like work, you know? And so I have to reach back to who that Anne was 10 years ago that drove her to be in this profession in the first place that I wanted to create something different that I didn't like what was existing and we were going to create something beautiful and joyful and joyous and something that didn't exist because that is what drives me and it's much harder now but I have to hang on to it and I do believe that there is a many people and I hope you're going to change your tune too Dave um, and, 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 and I want you to because, because you have a lot of power. And if you give up, a lot of people are going to give up. Okay. So I encourage you to please, like, I, I know there's a way to do it. Um, because otherwise you will see the demise and you will see these corporate chains, but there are a group of people that are committed. And I think the difficulty is going to come from the fact that we all run different business models. Um, it's not one size fits all, right? You've got your mom and pop uh, little place with 20 seats, and then you've got like, I don't know, like these mega empires, right? That are also independent restaurants, but they're very different. So how can we come together with one voice, right? In solidarity. And I think it's very similar. It's like, well, it's 
you know, what systemic racism is complicated, right? But for the first time, and it, it took a tremendous devastating tragedy for people to say, we don't know, but real change is going to happen. It's going to be messy. It's not going to be right. It's going to be a revolution. It's going to, um, it's a new, I, I, I want to think of this as a new renaissance, as an, in an opportunity. Um, so, and I, I don't have to change your mind today, no, no, Dave. And, 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 and Chris knows exactly what I'm about to say because I didn't really get to finish it all because, yes, I live in a world of pessimism. And um, my Han is so deep that I have to, like, swim in it every day. And I quit every day for, like, the past 14 years. I've quit in my mind. Yeah. Um, every, there's, at some point in the day, I'm going to quit. I don't want to do it anymore. This sucks. I... 13 years, we did it all on our own dime. On so why do you wells. keep coming back? Because I believe in the impossible. And <laughs> be, the only way, this is, this is the myth of Sisyphus' best, best symbol is, is the restaurant industry. And I have to just swim in that shittiness because I think the answer's in the shit. And I have to mm. constantly look at it as as unhappy as it makes me. And it brings me down more than anything else. My wife is right next to me and she's like, yes, she's shaking her head. <laughs> because I think the answers are there and you have to look deeper and harder at the, the almost the unholiness of it all to, to, to find the impossible. And when I, when I have hours and hours of sadness and, and misery I, the only way I come out the other side, the only way I can get to a point of optimism is by eating that shit first. And then I realize, oh, the impossible is the only truly virgin idea still that is untarnished by anything else, by COVID, by racism or anything. And that agency you talk about is, is, is what gives me that life. And I have 99% of my day is shit. And then it's that 1% that sort of washes it all away and I start the day anew the next day. And I'm like, oh, there's this crazy idea. Let's do it. Maybe the stupid idea is going to be the answer. But I can't yeah. do the stupid idea until I've like lost all hope. <laughs> well, man, geez, that's, you are uh, tough. I mean, yeah. I mean, do you really believe that 99% of your day is If you talk shit? to most people, they will know that my answers are not usually rosy because I just see the worst in things. Because I, I am an optimist. I'm an optimist because I, I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong. <laughs> okay, I thought I was bad because I would wake up and I'd be like, you know, yeah, I'm very much a glasses half empties gal, you know? And I would say like, all right, 75% of my day is going to be crappy and then 25% is going to turn it around. And I thought, Jesus, <laughs> Ann, like come on and I'm listening to you and holy I shit like I that's I don't want to be like armchair psychologist as as usual but I think and the way that because I'm with you I think Dave 99% is is heavy but I think Dave sees freedom in this shit I think I think when he sees everything as 99% negative that frees him up to chase the 1% that's why he's a he's an optimist is yes everything is worst case scenario but if I see everything as the worst case scenario, that liberates me to not worry about it if I know how mm. bad it can be. So he, he is positive. And yeah. Before, before we let you go, and I, I wanted, I mean, first of all, I think 
going back to something you said earlier, I think it's so funny, the idea of your credit card company being like, somebody has stolen this responsible Korean woman's identity and they're opening a restaurant. What's going on here? Um, but, you know, earlier you talked about, when we, in the very beginning, we were just talking about sort of how you're doing and you described it as a roller coaster. And, and I do want to sort of take us out on a high note here and ask you, you know, have there been some high moments on this roller coaster for you in the last few months? Have there been some positive breaths of air for you? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, there have. Um, and I think I like that analogy that you made about, you know, chasing the 1% because if you feel like, like, this is it, like you've hit rock bottom, like, I mean, there's nowhere else to go but up from here, right? And so when COVID hit, it was like, it kind of felt like a joke, you know, and it was like candy camera, like somebody's going to pop. Out. I was like, just kidding. But it wasn't. Nobody popped out. Right. It was like, no, this is going to go on. And then everyone thought, oh, in two weeks, we'll have phase one or, you know, in a month, there'll be phase one. And then it's like it's three months. Right. And now people are saying maybe 2021. And so, you know, when when it got to that point, it was just like. I hit kind of rock bottom. And I was laying and I was literally laying on the floor. And I said, I literally said, there's nowhere else to go but up, right? You can't go any lower. And he said, "Who? what's the worst that can happen? You file bankruptcy or you lose the house. And luckily, like, I've got a good head on my shoulders and, and I can, there's this great saying that, you know, a mentor of mine always says is, Anne, you can always begin again. And that really resonates with me because it's like, Hell yeah. You know what I mean? And then I started seeing silver linings in these situations, like seeing things like um, how we run our businesses. I have three different restaurants, one of which is a counter service slice shop that was inspired by my years in New York. And that was always sort of like, oh man, it, it never was really that profitable, but it was great for the neighborhood. And, you know, it was hard to get um, serious cooks to work there because they saw it as well. It's just a slice shop, even though we do everything the same in terms of our process and integrity of what we do. But then when COVID happened, it's like they had a core team because we reduced our hours and then we had the best, most dedicated team members and they were committed and they loved working together and they've never done better. They're profiting more than they ever have in seven years, believe it or not. Their morale has been better. So we've been able to see efficiencies almost by, it was like addition by subtraction in some ways. And so we were able to see things that weren't working before and now we're also re-examining, okay, all these hard things that we wanted to do years ago and said, it's an archaic system, you know, um, uh, creating a business model based on an old tipping model or how we price food, how we source food, um, how we feed people, what our expectations of our guests, um, all of that, all those things where we said, yeah, it's important, but nobody wants to face that. Nobody wants to deal with that right now. We don't have time. We're in the restaurant industry. Now we say, we're going to face that. We're going to make these changes because if we don't, we're not going to survive. You know, there's no going back to what things used to be. And I personally don't want to. And that's kind of felt liberating for me to say like, we don't have to, and we're not going to. And people, I think the community now also sees like there's this expectation, like, oh, we get it. Like, wow, you guys really did get hurt. 
oh, we didn't really understand how vulnerable your industry was. Now is the opportunity to seize that and to um, create more understanding, not only for the general public, uh, the consumer, but also for our own community in the restaurant profession to say like the way we were doing things before never worked. It won't work. So let's make some changes. And so for me, I almost want to go on a limb here and say, when all is said and done, it might have been worth it. You are way more optimistic than me. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't even, you don't even have remotely the close of high. Oh Your high level is like 2%. <laughs> hey, Chris, I don't think Dave and I should ever go out for beers because it could, you know, go. I mean, really if you do, I don't want to be there, my God. <laughs> Jeez, I never thought I could. I mean, I've given keynotes about my Han and people are like, holy shit, like, really? It's just like, I mean, I've got the angriest, you know, uh, angriest face. And, you know, we've had guests that would say, like, what's it wor like working for a boss that's so angry like that? And it was literally when I used to work the line and I just have this constant kind of frown, you know, frown. My dad has that. He's like, it's resting face. And I just, I always thought I'm just an angry, angry person. There can't be anyone more angry angry or pessimistic than me and I met sure. him. You learn, you learn something. You learn something every day. Uh, and, and can you talk about, before we get you out of here, two, two things. What's the fourth restaurant that you're opening? When is it supposed to open up? And what yes. is it serving? <laughs> Those are all good questions. Um, Suki and Mimi is the name of the restaurant. Suki is short for my maternal grandmother, Sukiang. And Mimi is my, um, who I explained to you earlier today in the podcast, uh, Mimi was my adopted grandmother, my uncle's mother. And so put those two names together. And uh, this restaurant was supposed to have opened a year ago, Dave. And you know, I remember because you spoke about it in the, 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 the New York Times September yeah, food yeah, section. Was, you should read that if you're listening to this. It's a great article. Yeah, I was supposed to have opened earlier. We're hoping um, that we'll get, you know, occupancy by September. And then after that, we're not sure because it really depends on what the environment looks like. Is it going to be safe? I mean, the governor has opened up restaurants, um, dining rooms at 50% capacity, but we have decided not to open uh, to continue with our takeout model until we know more because, frankly, we don't know more. And the number one priority for us um, as an organization is the safety and well-being of, of our uh, guests and our team. And so I'm not quite sure, um, but we hope to be finished with the build-out portion at least by September, and hopefully we'll be serving handmade uh, tortillas um, and whatever tastes delicious on them. Um, it, it's not going to be a Mexican restaurant. So anybody that's hoping to come to a taqueria and a Mexican restaurant, um, that's not what it's going to be. But it really is for uh, my love of um, handmade, handcrafted things. And I by no means am the author of tortillas. Um, it's just my attempt to honor the tradition and the craft and to do it as best as I can to honor those people who came before me who perfected this. And when I first had the bite of a nixtamal tortilla, I, I cried and said, why can't I eat this every day? So it's just like you said, Dave, you're always chasing, right? You're trying to get to that. And so I'm going to be chasing that. And um, hopefully we'll put whatever is delicious on it, in it, dipped in it, surrounded by it. And um that's the goal, and I, and I welcome you to come, please. Yeah, I can't wait. And uh, I, I don't know if you get enough credit or props for self-financing that restaurant. I don't know if people realize just how much more stressful it is 
<laughs> to to, oh, to operate, you know, everything's on sucks. the line. Yeah, your ass is on the line. My dog is on the line. You know what I mean? Literally. Yeah, you know, but you make you make choices in life, right? It's it's risk reward, and right now the risks seem really high, but at the end of the day, I don't regret it. Um, and we've been asking a lot of chefs uh, before we get them out of here. What have you been making at home? during quarantine and what, what's your, what's been your go-to? Are you cooking yeah. a lot more or are you just oh, ordering delivery? Every day. And I'm tired of doing dishes. <laughs> oh my God. I've never done so. I didn't realize how hard it is to do dishes at home. I love doing dishes at, at the restaurant, but at home, it fucking sucks, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, the quick, I mean, I'm making too much food because I don't really know how to cook for two. Um, but you know what the, greatest thing is, is like my little um, cuckoo rice cooker is like 24-7. I've never Mm. eaten so much rice in my life, like going back to that, like the comfort foods and having my mom's uh, actually, um, so my mom, I haven't been able to see her much. So I bring her um, groceries and I make her a lot of food. So that's kind of helps me to, in, in the way I cook anyway, batch cooking. And so when I go down there to drop off things for her, she'll have panchan ready for me. So I've been eating um, just a lot of um, just rice and panchan. And then after the, you know, a few days, throw it in a bowl and bop, and always kimchi jjigae because there's always kimchi in the house. And you all know that kimchi jjigae always tastes better with really funky kimchi. <laughs> so mm. going back to the Korean food, which is ironic because I never really cooked it for myself at home. Mm. Never. Uh, it was sort of my mom's thing, so I've kind of taken on her role. Well, that's beautiful. And uh, I cannot wait to get to visit your restaurants and to see all that you're going to get done because um, I am a betting person. And, and uh, when again, when I saw that speech and how you were just kicking ass, I was like, she's going to crush and continue to crush. And we couldn't yeah. be prouder of everything you're doing, particularly representing Korean Americans as well. And, and again, uh, this podcast to me was um, amazing to hear you speak mm-hmm. and, and very articulately uh, all the things that we've been trying to touch upon the past two, three months. So um, you're really good at this. And we hope to have <laughs> yeah. you on this podcast more. Well, I really appreciate it. And like I said, you know, part of my nervousness too was I was really nervous to meet you, Dave. And I just, and you don't, you don't give yourself enough credit. And I know like you probably have major critics too. Um, but I just want you to know that what you've done for Korean Americans and Korean American food is in America is something you should be really proud of. And um, I'm really, uh, proud to be a, a part of that tradition so thank you this has been this has been wonderful and please please i'd love to um feed you one day so come visit us when it's safe to do so can't wait all right well that was chef ann kim of pizzeria lola hello pizza and young Joni of minneapolis and she's got a fourth restaurant that we hope will be open soon. I think that was the the least Chris and I have ever spoken, at least for the first hour, because I was um, I was blown away, and that was that was a beautiful, beautiful hour plus of someone that I admire a lot, and I think is uh, doing everything the right way she possibly can. Yeah, it was 
life affirming to hear her speak. I, I, I'd hit a bit of a wall here, to be frank, emotionally over the last few days. And, you know, Dave, I know you've been going through a lot. And, you know, after you called me the other day to say that your father had passed, it, it really knocked the wind out of me too. And I've been in a little bit of a funk, but talking to the two of you just now was, it was a roller coaster, but man, it's so nice to hear from her. All right. Well, and I think uh, we're going to try to get you the audio of her 2019 acceptance speech. Oh, my goodness. This is incredible. I went to the bathroom before the last award because my spanks were so constrictive and I... So I remember I wrote it here. This is incredible. Thank you. This is unbelievable because I'm standing here on the stage and it has never been something that I thought could ever be in the realm of possibility. My journey has not been easy, it has not been linear, and it has not been traditional. But here I stand. I stand before you. And I stand here because 10 years ago, I said, fuck fear. <laughs> I gave up a very unlucrative acting career. <laughs> to be a cook. And by saying no to fear, I said yes to possibility. And my greatest hope in doing so is to give permission to all of you to do the same. We cannot be what we cannot see. And if my work has made a very traditionally narrow path just a little bit wider, a little bit more inclusive, that will be my greatest achievement. I also know that this achievement is not a singular one, and it is not something that I do alone as a chef in a restaurateur. To the team, my family at Young Joni, that work day in and day out, and an insane amount of talent and dedication to their craft, not only nourishing people with food, but with a special feeling of comfort and well-being, this honor is ours to share. So chill that champagne! And finally, to my parents, Pung and Young Kim, who immigrated to this country, to a sleepy suburb in Minnesota from South Korea some 40 years ago, who mopped floors, cleaned toilets, so that my sister and I would not have to. I know your heart sank when I said the words, I'm gonna be an actor. <laughs> Only to be followed by, I'm gonna cook. I know it's not the life you imagined for me. And yes, I too had to mop floors, wash a dish, and clean a toilet every now and then. But it's because of this journey, and not in spite of it, 
that I have the privilege to stand between colleagues, mentors, and people I have looked up to for years, and I stand here in front of you today. I am living my best life, and in the end, I know that's all that you wanted from me. 어머니 아버지, 정말 고맙습니다. Thank you.